0: Today we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3. The last time we saw seven illustrations of the Christian walk, and today we're going to look at the coming apostasy. Uh, If you know your scripture, you know that we are living in the times, not only by what we read about the coming apostasy, but what we read about the end times, starting with Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven until his second coming. These are the last days. Now, we may say, gee, because we only live about 100 years, a long time has passed. And, and they said that in the scripture, too. It's reflected in Peter and uh, Timothy's letters, you know, the promise of the coming. You know, we, we've heard this, but <clears throat> we are in this time period. It's a very interesting time period. and I believe that time is running out because eventually Christ will come back because he promised That he would. So, how do we respond to this? So, that's the question. What is the apostasy, and how do we respond to it? Starting with verse 1. But know this that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So the apostasy is moving away from the things of God and into the things of the world, which we know Satan was the one, or is the one, who still has control over the world before God removes that from him. Now, What's more alarming, we're going to look at some of these and we can say, yeah, Pastor Joe, all I have to do is read the paper and all of these things come to come to light. However, what's more alarming is when we find these things in the church. So I'm going to go back and forth between society, the church and Christians. And it really would behoove us to rate ourselves like we should often when we read the scripture to look in the mirror and say, where do I fit in on some of these uh, points? So, number one, lovers of selves. Bible's clear. God looks at the heart. He looks past our graying hair. He looks past our good looks. He looks past our physical deformities, and he sees right into our heart. And that's the way he deals with us, through the heart issue. Unfortunately, in the world, and what I read some things about before the service started, um, we as human beings, unfortunately, look at the outside. We constantly make judgments based on appearance, and we shouldn't do that especially not as believers. Narcissism is on the rise. Uh, narcissism in the church, narcissism in ministries, where now the uh, mission takes a back seat to the man. A lot of these ministries are egocentric, man-focused. You know, it's not about the church and what they're doing in community. It's about this particular pastor, this particular author, this particular uh, giant of of. Uh, Christian ministries. Narcissism. Uh, when someone says, my ministry, get a little concerned with that. Because even what I w- might consider my ministry from the pulpit, God can remove me anytime and use somebody else. It's his ministry, not my ministry. You know, the, those who are narcissistic are difficult to correct, they cause problems in the church, and uh, they act as individuals instead of as a church body. Two, lovers of money. Now, we covered this extensively. Well, whole denominations are built around lovers of money. Uh, Now, this is amazing because this is also hidden in plain sight. You know, we give credence to certain ministries, the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it guys. It's all about money. It's all about what you can get from God. He's your celestial Santa Claus, lovers of money, hidden in plain sight. Now, the first two, what we're looking at here is the breakdown that starts in the heart. The next two, we're going to see the transformation into the attitude. Third, boasters or braggarts. This is an unhealthy form of competition. There's times where I've heard testimonies given where a person may start to relish their past sins. And there's a competition. Well, you don't know what I did in my past. Well, I was a boozer. I was a womanizer. And, and, you, and you, they start telling the story. where Oh, and then I became a Christian. Where's the fruit? You know, it's all about the, um, the, the bragging of our past sins, and that's not good either. Uh, there are some that uh, are you know, it's a new type of ministry where they're braggarts from the pulpit. They're brash. They're on the edge. They're trying to get people to listen, and that's the way they do it. Four, proud or haughty. Proud, haughtiness. You know, I'm better than you. And this is the problem with church cliques, trying to break into a clique. You have to prove yourself. I mean, just this is high school stuff. This stuff should not be practiced in a church. Right? Haughtiness. Again, I'm not just going to talk about the world. I'm going to talk about what's going on in the church, especially the Western church. Right? There's a movement too, pride, uh, away from the simplicity of the word to focusing on uh, pastors. Well, if you're anything in, in uh, Christianity, you should, be, you should write some books. You, know, you should have doctor. You should have some letters at the end of your name. Now, these things are not bad in and of themselves, but when the focus is on that, it develops pride in ministry. Now, where's the focus? The fifth one, blasphemer, which just means injurious speech towards God. Well, society, we know. People get mad and they stub their toe and they say, Jesus Christ or God or whatever, whatever the case may be. Well, that's an easy one. But what about as believers when we go around blaming him for the problems in our lives? Oh, believers who, are, who out, outright say pretty insolent things about God. What about pulpits that don't preach the cross as the way to salvation? Jesus said that it was the only way to salvation. What about pulpits that don't preach the resurrection? That's blasphemous. Ah, the, the resurrection, we don't want to offend people and get on their nerves, so you know that stuff's negotiable. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Six: disobedient to parents. Well juvenile crime is, uh, is pretty high, right? There was, uh, in Isaiah 3, it speaks about a time in Israel where the children were the, were the oppressors. They were pushing their parents around. I mean, in our town, where I work, we had uh, a few situations where children killed their parents. There's two that I can think of in the last few years. Um, when we look at these two, we see disregard for authority. See, God-ordained authority, now, today, it's really cool to rebel against authority. But the truth is, there needs to be some type of authority. Without authority, there's chaos. So the attack is, number one, God. And then the second one is against parents, two, two authorities that God ordained. Now, 7, 8, 9, and 10, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. These are the four uns. And this is in direct opposition to what's good about God. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 5:20. Because this is what we're starting to see in our society. Believe it or not, like it or not. 520. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Everything is upside down in our society, and it's starting to happen in the church. So let's look at these four. Um, Well, in God's economy, uh, gratefulness, appreciation is good. I tell my son a lot, someone does something nice to you, tell them thank you and mean it. Appreciation, not an entitlement mentality. In, in our society, everybody's looking to get theirs from the government, from God, from their parents. You owe me. Nobody owes anybody anything. So gratefulness, appreciation, not practice so much. Unthankful. Um, you know, we can see this in the church as well. A uh, person's constantly complaining about God constantly complaining about their pastor, their church, their spouse, their kids. Um, And and they're not looking at their their own selves. Unholy. Well, which would mean it's the opposite of holy. Now, what is holiness? I remember doing a sermon on holiness, and I said, sometimes we're afraid of the word holiness. So I did a sermon and said, at the end of the service, I said, 'That that wasn't so bad, was it? Holiness is something to look forward to. Holiness is something really neat. It's something that we can achieve. It's something that God commands us that we be. And it just means to be separated from the world and separated unto God as his people. Unholiness or wickedness, Christians live like the world. Carnality is big. You know, the Christian who's carnal and constantly walking in both worlds, who comes to church and says they're a born-again Christian, but their lives don't reflect it. And then they struggle. And then they wonder why they struggle. Because God will not... He will not bless double-mindedness. You keep walking in both worlds. You keep trying to pull a little bit from each world. You're going to struggle. You're going to be emotionally messed up. You're going to be depressed at times because we weren't designed to do that as born-again believers. Uh, Nine, unloving. And this has also been translated without natural affection. It was bad enough when we had the deadbeat dads who have been around for a long time. Now we have partying moms and heroin moms and there's nobody watching the kids. Huh? Babies are being born, and the parents, the, the mother and the father, they're both out to lunch. They lost that natural affection, that, that affection that God gave them. right? There was a, you know, another story you can go through. As I'm going through this, I'm just looking at different media outlets. And you know, here's a guy who uh, murdered his children, and he set the house on fire, killed himself. How do you do that? But see, we read this so often, we become desensitized to it. Oh, yeah, it's another, another person who killed their kids. Wow, it's shocking. But we read about it so often that it's just commonplace, unfortunately. What about when this without natural affection happens in the church? The Bible tells us to honor our, our mother and father. The Bible tells us to take care and provide for our children. But some of this stuff is creeping into the church. Unforgiving or being a truce breaker. I'm going to try to use different synonyms based on you know going back into the Greek and looking at different translations, but unforgiving, a truce breaker. Years and years and years ago, if you had an agreement with someone, you gave your word. That's it. Then the word acquiesced to a handshake. Well, you shook my hand on that one. Then the handshake acquiesced to signing on the dotted line. Then that acquiesced to well, we all have to have attorneys now, don't we? We can't make any decision, we can't make any financial transactions if we have an attorney. The attorneys run the country, right? Because we live in a society of truce breakers, right? Now, probably the ultimate, and some of you may have, some of you that I know have been victims of this, where you want your marriage to work out, and the other party says that they don't. They're breaking the part about for better or for worse. I got news for you. Sometimes, or maybe oftentimes in a marriage, there's a lot of for worse than there is for better. Raising kids, you know, trying to make a living, uh, trying to hold everything down, keep all the balls in the air. But the divorce rate is so high in the church. Now listen, God offers forgiveness, and I'm not condemning anybody, but this is what's going on. Uh, Eleven, slanderers or false accusers. This is basically where you distort the facts or you make stuff up about someone and spread it around. Many years ago, one of the people we took in, my wife and I, she was older and she seemed mature, so we figured well, she probably won't give us a problem. She was having a hard time. And she stayed with us for a while and she was, she was being very sneaky. So, you know, the investigator that I am, you know, was, and my wife um, keyed into it pretty quickly, I was looking around the house and I found that she hid marijuana in my home. I was a police officer, you know? The nerve. You know, I was wondering why from the time she was there, I always craved Doritos, you know? I'm making a note of all of you who laughed at that one. Well she actually took, she actually went to the church that I came from and spread it around that I was a dirty cop, that they were my drugs. Yeah. And some people would look at me suspiciously, and I'd look back at them suspiciously. I'm like, are you that stupid that you don't even get the other side and you believe this? So it's, it's pretty bad for slanderers, but a slanderer will always have an audience, because there's always dumb people who will listen to one side, and they'll go with it, right? Uh, Twelve, without self-control. We live in a, a society that can't control, it's violent, it's violent. Or sexual urges. Now it's worse when among God's people, there's no attempt to control either one of those. Thirteen, brutal synonyms, fierce or savage, crimes of brutality. I read the story of a, recently, 15-year-old girl who killed a nine-year-old girl. And she wrote in her diary how it was a rush. How after you get over the initial fear, it was, this is pretty messed up the world we live in. Now, let me just make this infinitely worse in the church. During the Middle Ages, the church were the ones killing everybody. They wiped, up, they wiped out whole ethnic groups at the hands of the clergy. The clergy were the killers. Pretty frightening. You start reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, all the martyrs throughout this century in a in certain time period, the church was the, was the enemy. They were the ones burning people at the stakes. They were the ones killing people. So, brutal, fierce, savage. It's unbelievable. I know police officers who have shot people, and it's hard for them to get past that because they took a life. And here you have not even an issue given to murder and having blood on your hands. Fourteen, despisers of good. Another uh, synonym is hostile to virtue. And I've heard this. The girl who is a teen or a late teen, um, and she's trying to save her... Virginity for marriage is ostracized by her peers made fun of despisers of of things that are good Uh, it's, It's it's pretty sad There's a section of society that hates the cross Now What i've also seen in the church is that Again despisers of what's good a pastor who's a thief And i'm not just saying one particular time a pastor who's been an adulterer for years They'll always have a following I've seen this firsthand. It's frightening. A huge following. They're the heroes. Because this is, what, this is what the church has come to. And let me tell you something. It's in the Calvary Chapel community. And when I say that, all I know is really the East Coast. So I'm saying it in a general sense. Pretty scary stuff. Fifteen, traitors. Betrayal. There's a group called the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. Headed by clergy or so called clergy. They're the ones who send letters to the church and say every election time, well, don't tell your congregation what the candidates believe, don't sway them. Right? Groups that deny the resurrection, but they're clergy groups. A lot of church councils have completely gone the way of apostasy, away from God in their belief system, and they're trying, you know, all they have to do is wear the collar or wear certain vestments, and that carries a symbol of authority. It's frightening. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. These attributes are so bad that they contribute to the total breakdown of society and, if possible, the church. But Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my true church. 16, headstrong or heady, willful, rash. They won't listen to others until it's too late. Now, There's a term that we use, um, some of us in leadership, called person has arrived. They're so, (laughs) it's funny, isn't it? They're so heady, they're so headstrong, they're so full of themselves that they can't listen to anyone teach unless it's someone famous, somebody from California or whatever the case may be, someone who's written a book. They've arrived, they've plateaued, they're in a good place, they made it. Let me tell you something we never make it on this side of eternity. We always must be growing and we must be constantly looking at ourselves and seeing where we can do a better job in our relationship with God and others. Haughty, 17, similar to headstrong, but it's an attitude of an inflated ego that drives the headstrong behavior. Now, when we take these two qualities together, we see the damage it does to the church as the body of Christ concept. Remember in uh, First Corinthians Uh, The Apostle Paul speaks about the church sort of like a body. And then he uses imagery about the foot and the eye. And, you know, each one of us in the body has a a particular purpose and function. And we're all needed. What happens when today your body just started to, your hand was going this way and your foot was going this way? It would be like a comedy. It would be weird. Your eyes were rolling in the back of your head. You couldn't stand up straight because your body decided that each part of it wanted to do its own thing. These things spiritually are destructive the body becomes, it tries to secede from each other. It becomes fragmented. Now, a lot of this really comes from the first term, lovers of selves. What can I get? That's society's motto. What can I get for me? Well, that person's getting, so I want to get. And it gets into the church. How can I come to a church and see how it can minister to my needs? I'm going to keep hopping from church to church to church until I find something that... Mi- Is the word important? Is growing and maturing important, or is it all about what I can get for me? It's all about mine. Eighteen, lovers of pleasure greater than lovers of God. Now, that's important because we can look at, in America, the land of plenty, we can look at vacations, sports, recreation, and those are not bad things. But when they get to be in front of God, then they are bad things, and God will not take second place in our lives. I've actually had some that have the gall to say to me, well I put a boat in the water on Sunday or I golf on Sunday. Can you make your service on Saturday night? Sure. Me and my wife will just take another day out of our week and sacrifice so that you can do whatever you want. Not a problem. Obviously I didn't say that. The answer was no. (laughs) In my mind I was thinking those things. Well let's look at this in light of the recent Super Bowl. Now, I got to tell you that we have a good turnout when it comes to evangelism in this church. People really love to see others in the community getting saved. However, some of the big churches have the money to invite sports figures, sports stars, football players, baseball players to their church, and they get incredible turnouts. So here's my question ask yourself this. If you've never come to an evangelistic outreach to see someone get saved, and I'm not condemning you, but if we were to invite Manning or Tim Tebow, would you show up? If you would, you really need to check your heart, because that's pathetic. And I'm not just being cranky, it's my voice today, no. <laughs> Perspective check. These guys are getting paid millions of dollars to pass a ball to each other. Jesus Christ got himself nailed to a cross so that we would escape hell and have eternal life. Do you know as much about Jesus' teachings as you know about Manning's passing record? If you've been a Christian for a while and you can't answer that question, you need to go home and pray about that. We are so obsessed with celebrities. Every time we think an actor or somebody gets saved, Christians flock. Right away, they, just, they, they don't even test it. They just flock to this person. They're always talking about it. Pray for them because if they really are the real deal, they're going to be attacked. And they're going to be try to be pulled away to compromise. So definitely pray for them. I remember talking about Tim Tebow, saying you've got to pray for that guy because he seems on fire for the Lord. He seems like the real deal. Pray for that guy because he's gotten all kinds of pressures, I'm sure. Does the church need to entertain you? Some churches are guilty of being like the world. If I just stood up here and I didn't really even um, explain anything and I just started reading the word, would just still come. It is his word. He wants us to know his word. Does the church have to entertain us? 19, a form of godliness but denying its power. It looks spiritual. Everyone's talking the Christian lingo. We saw that in 1 Samuel 23 on Wednesday. Uh, King Saul was just speaking the Christian lingo, even though there was no Christian lingo back then. Blessed are ye, thee, brother, for ministering to me. Oh, please, King Saul. He guy was such a phony, you know? He was a poser, he was a pretender, a lifestyle with no real power because it's a facade. And even Calvary chapels, there are many that go to Calvary chapels for decades, Bible-believing churches, and they still have no power in their lives. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. It's right here in the scripture. I have to tell you, I am not a fan of memorizing scripture if we don't understand the scripture and we can't apply it to our lives. Satan knows the whole Bible. I bet you he can quote scripture better than I can. I bet you he understands concepts of God's word better than I can. He blows me away, but he's not saved. Right? Five, he says, from such turn away. Turn your back. Now, the cults will disfellowship you if you don't buy their doctrine anymore. But there is a proper uh, application of disfellowshipping. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that... He's friends with, with, you know, he wants to win everyone in the world to Christ. He goes, I don't turn my back on them. They're the world. I can't expect them to behave behave good. However, for someone who's a believer and does these things and leaves a double-minded life, he goes, I have to turn my back, and so should you. Many today have it backward. They're attracted to carnal Christians. What's the draw? You know, what's the draw? Verse 6. For of this sort... Are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? Now, as Jans and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Now, we have to look at this culturally. But there's also an application for us. Christianity did liberate women. That's a fact. Unfortunately, they were so used to being oppressed that they didn't have the tools to really grasp certain things because they were held down. As a matter of fact, uh, in different letters, the Apostle Paul commands husbands to be teaching their wives and fathers to be teaching their daughters so that they wouldn't be susceptible to this kind of thing. But what happened was the false teachers took advantage of this situation and they would go and they would um, you know, see if they could get them to get involved in certain things that they shouldn't get involved in. Now, there were some women who helped to build the church. Phoebe was a deaconess. The Apostle Paul speaks about her. Philip's daughters were all prophetesses. They prophesied. But there was another type that was in the church, gullible, foolish, and some of them were loaded down with sins. And the opportunists picked them out. Here's a a simple test. If you're looking to see something about a person and you're looking to see if they'll compromise, you'll say something. You'll throw it out there. Maybe you'll even apologize for it. But if it comes back with a favorable response, you'll say, oh, I got one. I got a live one, right? I'll give you an example. Um, Child porn, what these creeps will do is they will get into chat rooms with young kids pretend that they're about that age, and then they'll send an image of, of an adult disrobed, and then they'll quickly pull it back. Being in law enforcement, we know these things. And then they'll say, oh, gee, I'm sorry, and then see what the child's response is to it. The child says, oh, that's no, that's no big deal, that's kind of interesting. Then that person knows they got that kid hooked. If the kid kind of thinks it's weird and they weird it out, they'll move on to someone else. This is what false teachers do. They prey upon the weak. They prey upon the innocent, the gullible at times. But in this situation, it was these ladies were adults, so um, they also had a responsibility. You know, I used to be concerned about those, uh, I see a lot of these prosperity gospel pastors who are very wealthy, establish themselves into kind of poorer communities, and they try to manipulate them and get them to believe that they could be rich one day, but usually the only ones rich are the wealthy pastors. And I, for a long time, I felt sorry for them, but do you know what the truth is in God's word? Motives. A lot of those people stay in those churches because they buy that doctrine. They like it. It fits their lifestyle. I'm waiting for the big one to pull me out. Do a study on the lottery and how many people have won the lottery. More often than not, they've either killed themselves or they've met with tragedy or they lost everything and it's ruined their lives. So money is not necessarily a way out. But motives are very important. Some like to hear weird stuff. You know, they just... Their ears are open to that weird stuff. We're going to cover that in the next chapter as well. He says, they're always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth because their lifestyles won't let them come to the knowledge of the truth. It's being in a state of willful ignorance. Now, Jans and Jambres were magicians that were opposing Moses. If we look at the Exodus account, as a matter of fact, when Moses did some miracles, uh, Jans and Jambres, Satan has power. They did some miracles as well. Kind of weird when we see that stuff in the scripture. Satan does have limited power. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, it says that he's going to do all kinds of lying signs and wonders. That's why you've got to be careful about these um, signs and wonders movements. A lot of people are drawn to it. Test the spirits, the Bible says. Don't just run to it because it seems to be something miraculous. However, these guys, the Bible says, were going to be exposed. Um, and they won't escape God's judgment. They're depraved. Now, this can be a source of frustration to some of you who are trying to live the right life. You're a believer, you're trying to do the right things, and you're looking around, maybe even your peer group, and you see that others uh, are compromisers, and they seem to be doing well. That's been the age-old question since the beginning. Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why do the the double-minded, why do the phony seem to prosper? The Bible says God reigns on the just and the unjust, but in the end, and we don't want to wait till the end, in the end, everything will make sense. He's, nothing is going to escape his notice. It will be revealed. So, so take heart and be encouraged by that. Do, you know, the, the picture of the fish, uh, the Christian fish, swimming against the tide. The tide's very powerful. You ever see those, the salmon when they try to you know, go up against the water? It's difficult pursuit. I bet those little fish are exhausted after they do their spawning runs, but um, that's what we're called to do. We're not called to just go with the flow and see where it takes us. Verse 10. He says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. The Apostle Paul, I don't read here that he ever got rich, that he ever started a huge ministry, that he was well taken care of, that he lived in a king's palace, quite the opposite. But he says, the Lord delivered me out of all of them. Oh, that we could have that attitude. So we had the list of characteristics of the apostate, but he says, but you, Christian, be what you should be, what you should emulate in the midst of this. Number one is the doctrine. These are the truths espoused in God's word. This is the foundation. I'm very suspicious. Listen, everybody does a different style. And I've listened to some awesome speakers. Awesome, you know, even Baptist pastors, other denominations. And I sit back and I'm like, wow, that's that's really gifted. I really got a lot out of that. um, You know, it doesn't have to be Calvary way. But I am very suspicious of any type of Christian group or ministry that does not want to use the Bible in its entirety. Very suspicious. You realize that Islam uses the Bible, Judaism uses the Bible, Christianity, the cults use the Bible, most of the world's population use the Bible, but they take pieces of it. They take what suits their agenda and they throw away the rest. I have a lot of friends, you know, I know Jewish rabbis and such, and some of them will only go with the first five books. Others will teach the prophetic books. So even within their schisms, there's a sharp disagreement about what to use, but it's all the Bible. You see? So number one, doctrine. Two, manner of life. This is the way the Apostle Paul lived his life. And doctrine and manner of life should not be separable. The one should influence the other. Okay? Uh, Today we uh, maybe are in a genre of celebrity pastors. The pastors that are, you can't get to them. They're insulated. They're too big for their own ministries. They're ego-driven. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. He had time for everyone. And uh, he wrote half the New Testament. Three, purpose. And this is what everyone is looking for. What will God have me do? What is my purpose in life? Now, we don't have to read the purpose-driven life to get our purpose in life. Seriously, all we have to do is read God's word, be praying, and the Lord will show you. Now, purpose is very important because we don't want to miss the mark. We should want what he wants. We were, it was great The men's breakfast yesterday, we were speaking about some of this stuff and, you know, as men, we can be prideful and we shared some things. And if you guys shared, um, you know, well, this was God's plan for me, but I, I, I wanted to help God, you know, he had his plan and his purpose for me, but, and most of it was good, but God, let me help you. Let me just put my hands in there and tweak it a little bit because it's, you know, maybe you missed this part. It's kind of humorous, but what is our purpose? That's very important. You know, the purpose of a shotgun is not to be sweeping things. And don't worry, after last Sunday, I don't have a shotgun behind here. <laughs> you, you can hurt yourself if you use a shotgun to sweep something, big time. Purpose. It has to fit. Round peg, round hole. Four, faith. We can't have purpose without faith, because we have to trust in the one who's giving us that purpose. Hebrews 11.6 but those that come to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's one of my favorite scriptures, right? Where faith is saying to God, I trust you no matter what. Things don't look good right now, the Lord. Some of you may have walked in here today and you're struggling. You know, I can't see behind your frontal bone there. You may have uh, financial issues, relationship issues. You may have guilt. Some people carry guilt. You know, looking at certain situations, uh, regrets about life. I don't know. Only God knows. But to say, God, I trust you. Number one, to trust him that he'll forgive us. Sometimes, you know, God's forgiven us, and we're still beating ourselves up. Why do we do that? God says, look, I took care of it at the cross. You, you, in your heart, I know you are asking for forgiveness. You mean it. It's, it's clean. Why are you still hurting yourself? Right? So faith to believe that God will forgive us, and God will restore us, and God will use us in a mighty way. And that means all of us. Fifth, long-suffering. Now, this is similar to the seventh one, which is perseverance, but let me uh, break, break it down a little bit. Uh, long-suffering means to be patiently dealing with insult, injury, or trial. That's difficult. If you're amidst, in the midst of a trial right now, you're saying, gee, that's kind of hard. Uh, I'm trying, but I, I wish this thing would go away already. Perseverance is more of an endurance or going the distance. And six, love. Love is the impetus for everything. Love is the reason why we serve God. Love is the reason why we want to see our unsaved co-workers and neighbors and friends, you know, come to the cross and have eternal life. And eight, persecution, which is similar to afflictions. Um, Persecution usually comes from awful circumstances brought on from the outside. And afflictions, more of the emotional or psychological component, how it's dealt with. And there's a big difference there. So what happened in these areas, in Lystra, Iconium? Well, in Lystra, the Apostle Paul was serving the Lord, and they stoned him to death. They killed him. They pelted him with rocks until he breathed his last, and then he died. And then the Lord, the Lord resurrected him. He brought him back to life again. So what does the Apostle Paul do? Hey, this is crazy stuff. I got a chance now. I'm, I'm quitting. No, he gets right back into the ring. I think the Apostle Paul was the inspiration for Rocky Balboa, personally, you know, we are inspired, and we love to observe a person who can take so many of life's blows and continue going. I love that. That, that inspires me. Uh, Paul was definitely one of those people, just kept going. But you realize that that is available to all of us? Sometimes we look at Paul and Peter and John, and we think, gee, these guys were... Boy, they did some pretty crummy things, though. We think, well, God can't use us that way. Sure he can. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we put ourselves, we're, sometimes we're the ones that are holding us down and it's nobody else. That's something to consider. Verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. all, all. All who desire to live godly in Christ, uh, Psalm 34:19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. I want to focus on, the, again, the emotional component of this. In Psalm 23, it says, the Lord restores my soul. There's another translation that says, he refreshes my mind. You realize that? Yeah, Psalm 23 is read at funerals. I like to read it and explain it at funerals because it's very comforting. He is concerned about our emotional well-being. You know, he, he doesn't just say, hey, uh, just make it to heaven and I really don't care what you do from now until then. I really don't care about your problems. That's not true. There's an emotional component. Although the Lord may not take us out of every trial, if we're willing, we can go through it with him. Many of you have been there, but it's our choice. Sometimes he uh, does things, and, and if we're really close to him, even through the trial, he helps us to keep our sanity in these difficult circumstances try it. Call on the Lord. Whatever you're struggling with right now, go home today and when you're alone, just say, Lord, that's what you said in your word. That's what the pastor said. I'd like to see that. I'd like to do that with you because I'm really floundering right now. I believe that whatever he asks according to his will, Jesus said that he'll give to us as long as it's not evil. As long as it's not contrary to his word, he wants to comfort us. He wants to take care of us. Sometimes we don't reach out. This is real teaching for real situations. Now, there are those who maybe try to really avoid every trial. Or maybe they don't have that many trials because they really don't want to live godly in Christ. There are others who have not developed a relationship with the Lord, and when the trials come, they're unprepared. Help, help, somebody help me. I don't know what to do. Thirteen. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceiving. Here's the corollary. It's bad enough. You ever meet someone who's just completely self-deceived and you know the truth and you're trying to get through to them and it's just not happening? Or what about us? I know I've been, there's been times in my life where I've been self-deceived. And I look back and go, oh, I hope nobody remembers that situation. Because we can deceive ourselves. We can believe something that's wrong or a lie so many times that it becomes ingrained and we take it for truth. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in the things which you have heard and been assured of, knowing that or from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He keeps doing this, Paul. He keeps making this dichotomy. He keeps making the separation. This is what they do. This is what the world do. This is what those who are sold out for Satan's playground do, but you. You know, flee that, but pursue this. This is constantly in his letters. This is reality, Timothy. This is reality, brothers and sisters at Calvary Crossfields. But this is what we need to be doing. We can't get caught up in what they're doing. There's got to be a separation. Now, in Timothy's case, that he was brought up in a Christian home, his mother and his grandmother. But for any believer, any genuine Christian, continue. Now, that word continue is meno in the Greek, which is used in John 15, when Jesus speaks about the branch uh, and the vine. I am the vine. You're the branches. Right? Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll follow my word. Apostle Paul said, continue in the word, continue in good doctrine. So, so, so important. I say to some who um, just don't read or not interested in what the word says, I say, well, you call yourself a Christian, right? Well, let's look at this logically. Jesus said, there are those who love me. And in some translations, he says, there are those that hate me. And what's the litmus test? Do we follow his word or not? And I say, well, gee, I want to be in the good category. That's me. And the good ca- category says that I follow his word, but if I'm not reading his word, I don't know his teaching. How am I know if I'm following his word or not? So I try to encourage people to read the teachings of Christ so we could be in the good category. It, it's transformational. The scripture tells us that. As a matter of fact, when we're done with Timothy, we have one more chapter, and then uh, I'm just going to move into Titus. We're going to go into the Gospel of John. I haven't taught the Gospel of John yet. Very, very powerful. I know the women covered it, Then uh, they loved it. So I can't wait for that. 16, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That that doctrine, that instruction, that foundation is being on the right track. However, it is profitable for reproof or rebuke or conviction which can be hard a true friend will come to me a true friend will come to you when you're in error and say you're messed up that's love and say this is what god's word says you and and maybe possibly risk having a separation of friendship for a time proverbs 27 6 i believe tells us faithful the wounds of a friend the wounds of a friend I've been afflicted more times than I can count. I had some mentors who loved me enough. One was very powerful and strong, and, and the other one was very gentle, but they both knew how to afflict me. The, the wounds, the afflictions of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy, oh, you're so great, I'm so great, don't we have a great friendship, we're wonderful, wouldn't you want to be in our group? You know? True friendship. True friendship to tell you you're on the wrong track. There's a train coming. You need to get off that track. Rebuke. Three, correction. It's profitable for. Now that word literally means in the Greek to straighten up again, to be put back on the right track for instruction in righteousness. That's how to stay on the track. And five, the result for the man or the woman of God to be perfect. In the Greek, that means more of a maturity or a completeness. Totally furnished to do every good work. Now, there are many great secular charities that do wonderful things, help people. However, if there's not a a scriptural component or a spiritual component, it's just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. They're giving a fish instead of teaching how to fish for a lifetime. So what are we looking at here? The coming apostasy and how to respond to it. Um, There are believers that come from other countries that come here. Actually, K. P. Hannon wrote some great books. Um, gospel for Asia. He's an Eastern Indian. He ministers in in the subcontinent of India. He's come to America and he he was, you know, powerful, great author. And he was talked into staying here because America needed him. And he writes in his book, he goes, you know, the hotels were nice. I remember what it was like in India. The food was nice. The air conditioning is nice. He said, "I, I started to get caught up in that. Believers in other countries, if you bring them here, it's culture shock. You know, they don't have time to be carnal. They're, they're fighting for their lives. They really need God. I believe that Western Christianity is going to go apostate long before the other places do. Sometimes in America, we become Americo-centric and we look down our noses at others. But we're the ones really with the problems, Right? So the coming apostasy, how to respond to it? Listen, it's not something to worry about in the future because it's here. Because it's here. So how do we respond? Not blend in, not compromise. So many compromising believers. You know, it's like we're in the world and we go with the flow and then we become Christians and we kind of do that as well. It's wrong. Yes, yeah, so what they're popular? So what? They have a following. When the Lord comes for his saints, there'll be plenty of people in Calvary chapels all over the world still sitting in the pews, you know, to varying degrees. According to Revelation, there will be a church culture left when the Lord removes his saints from the earth before his second coming and touching down on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah. There will be a church, phony, surface, compromising, plenty of people in churches with buildings with crosses on them because they had no relationship with the Lord, and they will be fair game for deception. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the dragon, they're lying signs and wonders. They're gonna, he's going to set himself up to be Christ, and many are going to worship him, even go into the temple. How ironic that Ma- Madonna spoke about the Holy of Holies, because that's where the, the uh, Antichrist will set himself up. Look at me, I'm God. Look, I'm the Shekinah glory. How blasphemous. Don't let that be you. Don't be the one to be deceived. Practice these things now. First John was very revolutionary. Practice these things now, and you won't be caught off guard when the Lord comes for his saints. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for this time, Lord, to go through your word and, and to just encourage each other and to use the word to um, just guide us in our lives. We can use this word every day in every situation.